You're listening to Bible Prophecy Talk on the Revelations Radio Network. Welcome to a verse-by-verse exposition of the book of Daniel from BibleProphecyTalk.com. If you enjoy these podcasts, you may be interested to know that I have taken the information in this series, added some more to it, and put it all in a paperback and Kindle book available on Amazon. So, if you would like to have this commentary on your bookshelf or in your Kindle device, just go to Amazon.com and search for the title, Daniel, a Commentary by Chris White. Your purchase, as well as your reviews, will help to support future endeavors. Thanks for your time, and enjoy this episode. Daniel 11, verse 1 says, Also in the first year of Darius the Mede, I, even I, stood up to confirm and strengthen him. This verse seems to belong to the end of the previous verse. The chapter division was probably incorrectly put here because it has the phrase that usually appears at the beginning of chapters, in the first year of Darius the Mede. So the end of the previous chapter, chapter 10, should read, But I will show thee that which is noted in the scripture of truth, that there is none that holdeth with me in these things but Michael your prince. Also in the first year of Darius the Mede, I, even I, stood up to confirm and strengthen him. Therefore, this should be taken as Gabriel strengthening Michael as opposed to Darius. Stephen Miller in the New American Commentary says of this, In Daniel 10, 13, and 21, it is revealed that Michael had helped the interpreting angel, or Gabriel. Now, in 11, 1, Gabriel related that he had supported and protected Michael. The first year of Darius the Mede was 538 B.C., two years before this vision. Gabriel's awesome power is evidenced by the fact that he was called on to support Michael. The next verse, Daniel 11.2, then should represent the first verse in this chapter. It says, And now I will tell you the truth. Behold, three more kings will arise in Persia, and the fourth shall be far richer than them all. By his strength, through his riches, he shall stir up all against the realm of Greece. Let's first take this phrase, Three more kings will arise in Persia. Three more kings did arise in Persia, but as discussed in the commentary on Daniel 9.1, there were also co-ruling Median kings, which account for the discrepancies in some kings' lists by historians. Failing to understand that there were often two kings at a given time over the Medo-Persian Empire has caused a number of problems for Bible commentators as well as secular historians, but these problems are perfectly reconciled when this is understood. The next phrase, the fourth shall be far richer than them all, by his strength through his riches he shall stir up all against the realm of Greece. The fourth king mentioned here is clearly Xerxes I, and this is a very accurate way for the angel to describe him in advance. By his strength and his riches he did raise an army so big that the number that Herodotus gave of it is questioned by modern scholars because of how high it is. This army he used to advance on Greece. This began with the famous Battle of Thermopylae, portrayed often in movies when the 300 Spartan soldiers put up a good fight, though ultimately losing to the massive Persian army. I think it's fascinating the way that Scripture describes the main thing that Xerxes would do. He simply stirs up Greece. The reason this is interesting is first because that's all he really did to them. He would ultimately not conquer them at all. But second, it was the stirring up of Greece that gave rise to Alexander the Great. It is very unlikely that Alexander does what he does if Xerxes had not stirred up Greece. After the Battle of Thermopylae, 
Xerxes entered the deserted city of Athens and burned it, an act that outraged the Greeks, as it was considered a war crime of sorts in those conditions. Some say that Xerxes did it in a fit of rage and realized his mistake and tried to rebuild it the next day, but whatever happened, it certainly became a huge part of the anti-Persian sentiment in Greece after that. Xerxes had all kinds of problems with storms and other factors, which eventually resulted in his retreat. But the hatred of the Persians by the Greeks after this war was at a consistent fever pitch. And as soon as Alexander the Great took power in Greece, his hatred of the Persians led him to immediately march toward Persia in a military campaign that would literally change the course of human history. So, when scripture tells us that the main act of Xerxes was that he stirred up Greece, it's no small matter. As we move to the next verse, we'll see that this idea is validated as the next prophecy that the angel gives is of Alexander the Great. Daniel 11:3 and 4 says, Then a mighty king shall arise, who shall rule with great dominion, and do according to his will. And when he has arisen, his kingdom shall be broken up and divided toward the four winds of heaven, but not among his posterity, nor according to his dominion with which he ruled. For his kingdom shall be uprooted, even for others besides these. This mighty king that would arise is universally agreed upon to be Alexander the Great, who defeated the Persian Empire and began the Greek Empire. One of the reasons that we can be so sure that this is speaking of him is because of the details given in verse 4, which states that his kingdom will not be given to his descendants, as was the custom, but that it would be divided up among four non-descendants. This, of course, happened because Alexander died at age 33, and though he had two sons, they were too young to rule, and were later assassinated anyway. Alexander had not named a successor on his deathbed, instead only saying to, quote, give it to the strong. This led to a 22-year war among his generals, which eventually ended with a peace treaty settling on dividing the empire between four of them. His general Lysimachus got Thrace and Bithynia, and much of Asia Minor. Cassander got Macedonia and Greece. Seleucus got Syria, Babylonia, and the lands to the east. And Ptolemy got Egypt, Palestine, and parts of Arabia. Verse 4 also notes that this dividing would not be according to his dominion which he had ruled. In other words, it would not look exactly like the kingdom which he had left, and that was true as well. After the 22 years of war among his successors, there developed many differences with the boundaries of the Greek Empire. For example, the vast area that was controlled by Alexander to the east of Syria had almost all been lost. Verse 5 says, Also the king of the south shall become strong, as well as one of his princes, and he shall gain power over him and have dominion. His dominion shall be a great dominion. The king of the south is a reference to one of the four generals of Alexander, particularly Ptolemy I Soter. He was one of the greatest generals of Alexander, and when the dust settled after the wars between the generals, he controlled the prized territory of Egypt and the surrounding lands, which from here on out will be referred to by me as either the king of the south or by the technical name of the kingdom which derives from his name, that is, the Ptolemaic Empire. The next phrase says, One of his princes and he shall gain power over him, and have dominion, his dominion shall be a great dominion. This is a reference to another of the original generals of the four divisions of the Greek Empire that we mentioned earlier, named Seleucus I Nicator. We also call his division by his proper name today, that is, the Seleucid Empire. It says in verse 5 that Seleucus was one of Ptolemy's princes, or commanders, before getting his own kingdom, and this is true. 
During the turbulent years of the wars between these generals, before it was at all clear who would rule what, Seleucus, a lesser former general of Alexander, was put over the city of Babylon, kind of like a mayor or governor, called a satrap. But, as was so often the case during these twenty-two years of war between generals, another one of Alexander's generals named Antigonus, not to be confused with Antiochus, seized Babylon. Seleucus, the satrap, fled towards Egypt after this takeover and became one of the king of the south, that is, Ptolemy's princes, or commanders. About four years later, Ptolemy, with the help of his new commander Seleucus, went back up to Babylon and defeated Antigonus, who by that time had built up the northern kingdom pretty good. So when Ptolemy gave Seleucus back the northern lands, he was giving him a pretty good-sized kingdom, which Seleucus then enlarged even more, eventually making it, as it says in verse 5, a larger dominion than Ptolemy's. The two kingdoms lived in peace for some time, but eventually Seleucus to the north claimed dominion over the hotly contested lands of Israel and the surrounding lands which lay between the two empires. This sparked hostilities between these two nations, which eventually would result in 130 years of war between these two divisions of the Greek Empire. The next 15 or so verses in Daniel will detail the wars between these two divisions. Israel will always be controlled by the empire, who has the most power at the time. Daniel 11.6 says, And at the end of some years they shall join forces, for the daughter of the king of the south shall go to the king of the north to make an agreement, but she shall not retain the power of her authority, and neither he nor his authority shall stand, but she shall be given up with those who brought her, and with him who begot her, and with him who strengthened her in those times. The two kings, Ptolemy I and Seleucus I, died, and their sons basically started some wars which were based on their father's dispute over control over the lands surrounding Israel in what is known as the First and Second Syrian Wars. We have this phrase, and at the end of some years they shall join forces. After the Second Syrian War, they joined forces by coming to terms in a peace treaty, which had as its terms that the daughter of the king of the south, named Berenice, was to marry the king of the north, who at this time was Ptolemy I's grandson, Antiochus II Theos. The problem was that Antiochus already had a wife named Laodice, who Antiochus II then exiled to Ephesus and transferred the right to succeed him to the sons of his new wife as per the peace treaty. It says, She shall not retain the power of her authority, and neither he nor his authority shall stand, but he shall be given up with those who brought her, and with him who begot her. Berenice did not, quote, retain the power of her authority, because after her father back home in Egypt died, who the peace treaty was made with, Antiochus, her new husband, put her away and took his old wife Laodice back. Laodice, his first wife, however, perhaps not liking the idea that she was exiled in the first place, when she was back in the palace, poisoned her husband, and told everyone that his last words were to grant her son to be the ruler. Berenice, however, contested this, and said that her son should be the ruler, but Laodice had both Berenice and her infant son killed. This killing of her son is what may be meant by the phrase, and with him who begot her, which the Net Bible translates as her child a translation which has support in the Greek versions of the Old Testament. Daniel 11:7 through 8 says, But from a branch of her roots one shall arise in his place, who shall come with an army, enter the fortress of the king of the north, and deal with him and prevail, and he shall also carry their goods captive to Egypt with their princes and their precious articles of silver and gold, and he shall continue more years than the king of the north. 
So first we have this phrase, from a branch of her roots, one shall arise in his place. This came to pass when Berenice's brother, back in Egypt, Ptolemy III, rose to power after the death of his father. The next phrase, who shall come with an army, enter the fortress of the king of the north, and deal with them and prevail. Ptolemy III raised a great army and attacked the king of the north to avenge his sister's murder by Laodice, who effectively was now ruling the north, though technically it was her son, Seleucus II, who officially was on the throne. Ptolemy's Egyptian army crushed the Syrian armies and even captured Antioch, the capital, and killed Laodice. And this was what was known as the Third Syrian War. Next we have this phrase, And he shall also carry their gods captive to Egypt, with their princes and their precious articles of silver and gold. Ptolemy spent a lot of time plundering the east after the war, bringing back treasures of all kinds, making it as far as Babylon on his plundering trips. He even took things back to Egypt that were said to originally have been the property of Cambyses, that is, Cyrus's son. He brought so much wealth back to Egypt that they gave him the title of Urgetes, which means benefactor. The war ended with a peace treaty, which awarded Ptolemy III of Egypt even more wealth. The text says, quote, he shall continue more years than the king of the north, end quote. He did. In fact, he enjoyed a 24-year reign, a very long time for the period. The next verse, Daniel 11:9 says, And also the king of the north shall come to the kingdom of the king of the south, but shall return to his own land. There is some confusion as to what this verse is actually saying. Basically, it's hard to tell if it's saying that the king of the north will try to invade Egypt, but will return quickly, or if it's simply summing up the previous discussion by saying that the king of the south will return home. The pulpit commentary sums up the problem nicely. It says, The Septuagint version differs less than usual from the Masoretic. Quote, The king of Egypt shall enter into his kingdom certain days and return to his land. End quote. Theodosian renders, quote, and he shall enter into the kingdom of the king of the south and return to his land, end quote. The Peshitta differs more, saying, quote, the king of the south shall enter in strength and turn to his own land. The Vulgate does not differ from the others. This verse, assuming the king of the south, Ptolemy, to be the subject of the verb, merely completes the statements of the previous verse and seems to describe the triumphant return of Ptolemy to Egypt. If we take which, however, is not so natural, the king of the north is a subject, then the reference may be to the unsuccessful attempts made by Seleucus to invade Egypt. I don't have a very informed position on this, but I would only say that the verse is describing a very mundane thing any way you look at it, either a return trip home by the king of the south, or a planned invasion by the king of the north that ends in retreat, which I would say the next verse seems to suggest is the case. But since either way it brings us to the same place, I'll take a pass on taking a stand on this. The next verse, Daniel 11.10, says, However, his sons shall stir up strife and assemble a multitude of great forces, and one shall certainly come and overwhelm and pass through, and then he shall return to his fortress and stir up strife. The king of the north indeed had two sons, the eldest of which ruled for only a few years and then was assassinated by his army while on campaign. The younger son was named Antiochus III the Great. Both of these sons, quote, stirred up strife and assembled a multitude of great forces. The next phrase, one shall certainly come and overwhelm and pass through, and then he shall return to his fortress and stir up strife. This is a reference to Antiochus III, the younger son, campaigning in Lebanon, which were lands that were claimed by the king of the south of the time. 
though he had to return to his fortress, end quote, because his attempt to take Lebanon was unsuccessful, he definitely, quote, stirred up strife when he began to plan another attack on the hotly contested region, which was claimed by the South. His actions in Lebanon sparked the reactions of the king of the South in the next verse. Daniel 11.11 says, And then the king of the South shall be moved with rage, and go out and fight with him, with the king of the North, who shall muster a great multitude, but the multitude shall be given into the hand of his enemy. The king of the south, who by now was Ptolemy IV, went out to defeat the king of the north, Antiochus III, who did indeed, quote, muster a great multitude, including not just his regular forces, but 10,000 Nabataeans and Arab forces. This, however, wasn't enough, because as it says in verse 11, the multitude shall be given into the hand of his enemy. In other words, the king of the north, that is Antiochus III, was defeated at this great battle in 217 BC, sometimes called the Battle of Raphia, southwest of modern Gaza. Daniel 11.12 says, When he has taken away the great multitude, his heart will be lifted up, and he will cast down tens of thousands, but he will not prevail. Though the Hebrew here is difficult, it seems that it is talking about how this complete victory at Raphia made the Egyptian king proud. The pulpit commentary suggests that the last part of this verse, speaking of him not prevailing, even though he was the victor, is talking about his refusal to follow up the victory by pursuing those that fled and destroying them, which, as we will see, will ultimately be a terrible mistake. Though J. Paul Tanner suggests that the latter part of this verse is referring to the defeated Antiochus III, who, though responsible for the deaths of tens of thousands, survived the battle and spent the next 14 years putting down revolts. This would seem to make more sense, historically, also considering that Antiochus III is again in view in the next verse. Daniel 11.13 says, For the king of the north will return and muster a multitude greater than the former, and shall certainly come at the end of some years with a great army and much equipment. About 15 years after the previous verse, the defeated Syrian king Antiochus III was not so weak anymore. He will return to fight with the Egyptians with a much greater force, also with great equipment. This will mark the beginning of the Fifth Syrian War. In fact, this verse marks the end of the general Egyptian dominance as well. After this point, the Syrian kingdom will be consistently the stronger of the two nations. The next verse, Daniel 11.14 says, Now in those times many shall rise up against the king of the south. Also the violent men of your people shall exalt themselves in fulfillment of the vision, but they shall fall. When Antiochus III went back to attack the Ptolemaic strongholds around Israel, he found some allies in certain Jewish men. The Bible calls them here, violent men of your people. This phrase is mostly used for thieves and murderers in the Old Testament, and it appears that it's only these types of men that joined Antiochus III. However, the general discontentment with the Egyptians, who were ruling Judah at this time, was great and the Jews were living very difficult lives as a result of the Egyptian or Ptolemaic rule, and so it's not surprising that certain Jewish men would jump at the chance to join with the strong army and revolt against their oppressors. It says that these Jewish soldiers fighting with Antiochus, quote, shall exalt themselves in fulfillment of the vision, but they shall fall. This vision that they were fulfilling is apparently this one in Daniel 11. It's very likely, though, that they were fulfilling it unknowingly. Clark says that the vision that these men were trying to fulfill was in Isaiah 30. He says, quote, "...shall exalt themselves to establish the vision, that is, to build a temple like that of Jerusalem in Egypt, hoping thereby to fulfill a prediction of Isaiah, Isaiah 30, 18-25, which seemed to 
intimate that the Jews and the Egyptians should be one people. They now revolted from Ptolemy and joined Antiochus, and this was the means of contributing greatly to the accomplishments of the prophecies that foretold the calamities that should fall upon the Jews. It says that they shall fall. This is an interesting lesson here, I think, because this is the one time that Israel bet on the right horse, as it were, yet they still wound up, quote, falling. Usually, despite all God's warnings not to trust their neighbors for security, Israel chose someone to protect them, and then the nation would end up being defeated by the nation that they wanted to be protected from, and Israel is punished severely for their rebellion. In other words, they are in worse shape than if they had not chosen a side in the first place. But in this case, they did make the right decision in one sense. Antiochus III was a great power, and he would end up defeating their oppressors. But the battles were not won quickly or easily, and in fact, Antiochus suffered an early defeat by an Anatolian general named Scopus, who, even though he would only hold out a little longer against Antiochus, used his brief victory to punish these men for their rebellion, thus causing them to fall. Though I should submit that there is very little history I can find about the details of this last event, and I'm relying primarily on Clark's commentary, so I would be open to a different interpretation at this point. Daniel 11.15 says, So the king of the north shall come and build a siege mound, and take a fortified city, and the forces of the south shall not withstand him. Even his choice troops shall have no strength to resist. In 200 BC, Antiochus launched a second attempt to defeat Scopus. This time, he was successful. Scopus retreated to a, quote, fortified city, Sidon, on the coast, and tried to escape the pursuit of Antiochus. However, as it says here, the forces of the south shall not withstand him. Even his choice troops shall have no strength to resist. The forces gave in at Sidon and surrendered to Antiochus III, and this would mark the end of the Ptolemaic rule of Judah. Daniel 11.16 says, But he who comes against him shall do according to his own will, and no one shall stand against him. He shall stand in the glorious land with destruction in his power. This is a reference to the victorious Antiochus III. J. Paul Tanner says of this verse, The important port city of Sidon had now fallen to the Seleucid control, an event that enabled the Seleucids to maintain control over the interior lands. Since Egypt was too weak to mount another offensive, Antiochus III could essentially do as he pleased. Antiochus III, with power to destroy, spent the first half of 198 BC extending his control over the rest of the former province of Colsyria, including Judah and Jerusalem, the beautiful land. Antiochus now completely dominated Colsyria, the prize that the Seleucid kings had long sought for and felt was their rightful possession since the Battle of Ippus in 301 BC. Daniel 11.17 says, He shall also set his face to enter with strength of his whole kingdom and upright ones with him, Thus shall he do, and he shall give him the daughter of women to destroy it, but she shall not stand with him or be for him. Antiochus III then began to extend his empire to the lands to the east of Syria and had great success. However, this great success came to the attention of Rome, who was beginning to become the great power in the region. Rome essentially came in and forced Antiochus to make a peace agreement with Egypt. Antiochus gave his daughter to the king of Egypt, which was a customary peace arrangement. However, he did this hoping that when the time was right, she would turn on her husband and essentially be an agent for his plan to defeat the Egyptians. This is what is meant by, he shall give him the daughter of women to destroy it. This plan, however, did not work. When the time came, she sided with her new Egyptian family. This is what is meant by, but she shall not stand with him or be for him. Daniel 11.18 says, After this he shall turn his face to the coastlands, and shall take many. 
But a ruler shall bring the reproach against them to an end, and with the reproach removed, he shall turn back on him. These next verses prophesy the downfall of the great Antiochus III. After he made the peace agreement with the Egyptians by giving his daughter to them, he once again turned his attention to conquering more land, this time the coastlands. The ESV translates this verse this way, Afterward he shall turn his face to the coastlands and shall capture many of them, but a commander shall put an end to his insolence, indeed he shall turn his insolence back on him. The conquering of the coastlands of Asia Minor by Antiochus once again angered the Romans, who had many interests in the area. So they organized campaigns to destroy him. The, quote, commander that is referenced is Scipio Asiticus. The battle that he defeated Antiochus was the Battle of Magnesia. Antiochus, though, was not killed in the battle, and instead was forced to sign the Treaty of Apamea, in which he abandoned all lands east of the Tarsus Mountains, which Rome then distributed amongst their friends. Daniel 11.19 says, Then he shall turn his face toward the fortress of his own land, but he shall stumble and fall and not be found. After signing of this treaty, Antiochus went to the eastern provinces of his own land to deal with rebellion. He was killed by an angry mob when, in need of money, he was plundering the temple of Zeus in that city. The mob, outraged at this, killed him and those that were with him. Daniel 11.20 says, And there shall arise in his place one who imposes taxes on the glorious kingdom, but within a few days he shall be destroyed, but not in anger or in battle. Antiochus III was succeeded by his son, Seleucus IV, Philopater. Seleucus inherited a huge financial burden because of the taxes Rome had forced on the kingdom after their defeat and subsequent Treaty of Apamea. Again, the ESV helps us to get a better sense of this verse. Then shall arise in his place one who shall send an extractor of tribute for the glory of the kingdom, but within a few days he shall be broken neither in anger nor in battle. The extractor of tribute that was sent out by Seleucus was named Heliodorus. He was basically a tax collector, and he was hated by many. He was also sent to Jerusalem to get taxes from the temple. But a Jewish legend says that a vision of an angel stopped him before doing that. In any case, it was this tax collector Heliodorus who would help fulfill the next part of this verse, namely that King Seleucus would not be killed in anger or in battle. This is because Heliodorus poisoned the king in hopes of taking his place. Daniel 11.21 says, And in his place shall arise a vile person, to whom they will not give the honor of royalty, but he shall come in peaceably and seize the kingdom by intrigue. And now we've come to the most infamous Antiochus, Antiochus IV, or Antiochus Epiphanes. He is the vile person being referred to in this verse, mostly because of his persecution of the Jews, which we will detail later. It says, quote, They will not give the honor of royalty to him, but he shall come in peaceably and seize the kingdom by intrigue. Antiochus did not come to power in the usual way, that is, by conquest or by being the rightful heir to the throne. Now, Antiochus was also the son of Antiochus III, just like his brother, the rightful heir, Seleucus, However, after Heliodorus, the tax collector, killed his brother, the rightful heir to the throne was Seleucus's son, who was in Rome at the time, though Heliodorus took the throne after he killed the king anyway. Antiochus had Heliodorus, the usurper, killed, and then he took the throne for himself. But he was only able to get away with that because he declared that he would be co-ruling with the rightful heir, that is, his nephew, who was still in Rome. However, he later had his nephew killed, and thus took the kingdom by, quote, intrigue. 
The next verse, Daniel 11.22 says, With the force of a flood, they shall be swept away from before him and be broken, and also the prince of the covenant. There is some disagreement on this passage, which I think derives in part because of some difficulties which is in the Hebrew at this point. After Antiochus took power, he heard that the Egyptians were planning a war to retake the area around Israel, Col Syria. So he preemptively attacked the Egyptian armies and, quote, swept away and broke all the armies he encountered. In fact, he conquered almost all of Egypt with the exception of Alexandria. During this first campaign, he also took captive the prince or king, Ptolemy VI, who could be the referent for the Prince of the Covenant, though some make a good case for this being a reference to Onias III, the high priest in Jerusalem, who was ousted by an arrangement with pro-Greek or pro-Hellenist elements within the Jewish nobility with the backing of Antiochus. After his capture, Ptolemy VI made a covenant to become an ally of Antiochus if the Syrians, that is Antiochus, would help him regain his throne in Egypt, which had been taken by his younger brother Ptolemy VII. Antiochus was delighted to make such a pact, for he felt that it would give him a foothold in Egypt. The next verse, Daniel 11.23 says, And after a league is made with him, he shall act deceitfully, for he shall come up and become strong with a small number of people. After Antiochus and Ptolemy made this pact, Ptolemy will end up breaking the terms of the agreement and joining with his younger brother, and instead of being a pro-Syrian puppet, as Antiochus had hoped, Ptolemy will join forces with his brother, which was a, quote, small number of people, and, quote, become strong. They will eventually join forces with the Romans and defeat Antiochus. But before all that, in the meantime, after Antiochus's initial victory over all but Alexandria, he would have a time of great prosperity. The next verse, Daniel 11.24, says, He shall enter peaceably even into the richest places of the province, and he shall do what his fathers have not done, nor his forefathers. He shall disperse among them the plunder, spoil, and riches, and he shall devise his plans against the strongholds, but only for a time. This verse is referring to the time just after Antiochus defeated all but Alexandria. He was able to basically loot all of Egypt, which was incredibly wealthy. It says, He shall do what his fathers have not done, nor his forefathers. He shall disperse among them the plunder, spoil, and riches. This is a reference to what Antiochus did with the wealth he attained during this period. A book written about his life in 2006 by Peter Franz Mittag which is kind of a revisionist history, trying to paint him in a good light. Yet, nevertheless, it offers never-before-heard information about Antiochus and his career. In it, there is a section that seems to validate this verse, where it describes the various ways that Antiochus used the spoils of this particular war to please his people and build the kingdom. This phrase, he shall devise his plans against the strongholds, but only for a time. During this time, Antiochus had high hopes about what he would accomplish if he could only finish the job and attack the stronghold of Alexandria. He plotted and planned, but this time of high hopes was not to last. It was indeed only for a time. Daniel 11:25 and 26 say, He shall stir up his power and his courage against the king of the south with a great army, and the king of the south shall be stirred up to battle with a very great and mighty army. But he shall not stand, for they shall devise plans against him. Yes, those who eat of the portion of his delicacies shall destroy him, his army shall be swept away, and many shall fall down slain. Starting here and ending with verse 28, 
The text will go into more detail about this first campaign of Antiochus. In other words, it will kind of rehash the same information that appears in verses 22 through 24 about the first and only successful campaign of Antiochus. This is also the view of Miller. This time, however, it seems to focus on the more deceptive nature of Ptolemy's advisors and the role they played in the initial downfall of Egypt and the first part of the war. It says, He shall stir up his power and his courage against the king of the south with a great army. This is a reference to Antiochus conquering nearly all of Egypt, which was discussed earlier. Then it says, But he shall not stand, for they shall devise plans against him. The reason that Ptolemy was defeated by Antiochus is because they shall devise plans against him. The they is clarified in the next verse when it says, Yes, those who eat of the portion of his delicacies shall destroy him. This is a reference to the counselors of Ptolemy, who was only a boy king at the age of 16. The counselors were on the pay of Antiochus and seemed to sabotage the whole affair. Some suggest that because his counselors forced Ptolemy to declare war on Antiochus, it gave Antiochus the moral high ground to preemptively strike. It seems that there was an attempt already to oust Ptolemy for his younger brother and niece Cleopatra. This deception by his counselors may have been ends to those means. Daniel 11.27 says, Both these kings' hearts shall be bent on evil, and they shall speak lies at the same table, but it shall not prosper, for the end will still be at the appointed time. This again is a reference to the deal between Antiochus and his now prisoner, Ptolemy, to work together to put Ptolemy back on the throne in exchange for him being a puppet of Antiochus. This verse indicated that neither Antiochus nor Ptolemy had any inclination of following through with this plan. Daniel 11.28 says, While returning to his land with great riches, he shall be moved against the Holy Covenant, so he shall do damage and return to his own land. This verse is tempting to see as the famous incident of Antiochus going to Israel in a rage after his defeat by the Romans, but that will come later. This verse is speaking of his first victorious return from Egypt to his own land, Syria, which of course to get to, he had to pass through Israel. During this occasion, he went into the temple and stole the treasures therein. He did not at this time commit the abominations that are so fam famous. The instance of looting the temple on his way back to Antioch after the first battle against the Egyptians is mentioned in 1 Maccabees 1, 20-24. This is the damage he will do before he returns to his own land. Daniel 11:29. It says, At the appointed time he shall return and go toward the south, but it shall not be like the former or the latter. Now we get to Antiochus's second attempt to take the kingdom of Egypt. One of the reasons that this invasion would not be like the former or the latter was because during his absence from Egypt, his puppet king reconciled with his brother and joined forces. When Antiochus heard of this betrayal, he made a haste to attack them both. However, the new Egyptian coalition had another trick up their sleeve, the Romans. The Egyptians had written Rome and told them about how Antiochus was behaving in violation of the Treaty of Apamea, signed by Antiochus's father. In fact, the only reason that Antiochus had success in his first campaign against Egypt was probably because at the time, Rome was tied up in the Third Macedonian War and didn't have the resources to enforce the treaty. But by Antiochus's second attempt to take Egypt, Rome had finished their war and had both the time and the resources to deal with the situation and sent out help for the Egyptians. The next verse, Daniel 11.30, says, For ships from Cyprus shall come against him, Therefore he shall be grieved and return in rage against the Holy Covenant and do damage. So he shall return and show regard for those who forsake the Holy Covenant. 
This phrase, for ships from Cyprus shall come against him. The literal phrase is not Cyprus, but rather Kittim, which in Jewish literature, such as the Dead Sea Scrolls, was used specifically for Rome, but it also was generally used for the region of the Mediterranean, including Cyprus. However, since the following events occurred in Cyprus, it would seem that either way you take it, this is a match. What happened is that Rome, in hearing that the Ptolemaic kingdom was about to be destroyed, and as we said, just having concluded their war against Macedon, sent ships to Cyprus to attack Antiochus. After they defeated Antiochus, the general, Gaius Pompilius Laenus, did something from which we get the phrase, line in the sand. He demanded the defeated Antiochus to immediately cease the war and to completely withdraw from Egypt. Antiochus basically said he needed time to think about it, but the Roman general drew a circle around him in the sand and told him that he needed to have his answer before he stepped out of that circle. Antiochus, totally humiliated, then agreed to all the terms of the Romans. The next phrase, therefore he shall be grieved and return in rage against the Holy Covenant and do damage. Antiochus was, quote, enraged for a number of reasons as he headed back to Israel. The first was obvious. He had lost a battle in a humiliating way, a battle that he spent his whole life planning for, and had come very close to winning. The second reason was that a revolt had broken out in Judea, partially because a false report had been circulated that Antiochus had died, which then caused the Jewish people to oust the puppet high priest that Antiochus had put in place to rule them. But when Antiochus arrived, and it was obvious that he didn't die, he reinstated the high priest and began a number of atrocities which are in view in the following verses. He shall return and show regard for those who forsake the Holy Covenant. This verse is stating pretty much the same thing as verse 32, which says, Those who do wickedly against the covenant he shall corrupt with flattery. At this point in Jewish history, there were a number of factions in Israel, one of which was the radically pro-Greek, or pro-Hellenist. Antiochus had a policy of acting favorably to those Jews willing to turn from their biblical faith and embrace Hellenization. This paints an interesting picture of Antiochus, who is usually depicted at this point as a madman, but there seems to have been a method to his madness, even in this time of humiliation and defeat. His main goal seems to be stabilization and consolidation of what parts of his empire he had left. This would necessarily include, as he saw it, making an example of the Jews who did not embrace Hellenism and which were part of the recent rebellion against his Hellenist puppet. The fact that he is twice referred to as being kind to those who got with the program is evidence that he was not acting in a blind rage, but with a sense of political savvy. This also perhaps gives us some insight into the Antichrist, who also will cause a great apostasy, or a great leaving of the faith, not just by deception, but also by making incentives to apostatize. In the case of the Antichrist, the ones who leave their faith will have their lives spared, but they will also be able to buy and sell again. This is a deal that is hard to refuse, and will require steadfast faith on the part of the saints to do so. Though it will not be until verse 36, five verses from now, that the future Antichrist will be in view, I do think that about here we start to see the beginnings of the fade effect, where certain elements apply to one or both Antiochus and the Antichrist. There will be more on why conservative scholars are in agreement that the future Antichrist is in view when we get to verse 36. 
The next verse, verse 31, says, And forces shall be mustered by him, and they shall defile the sanctuary fortress. Then they shall take away the daily sacrifices, and place there the abomination of desolation. Antiochus's forces carried out a wide range of policies and acts that defiled the sanctuary fortress. Here is a list of these acts and policies from J. Paul Tanner. A special emissary was sent to Judea to force the Jews to transgress the laws of their religion. Jewish ritual was prohibited. The sacred precincts were formally given over to the worship of Zeus. Copies of the Torah were burned. Sabbath-keeping and circumcision were forbidden. Jews were forced to celebrate the king's birthday every month and to participate in a festal procession of Dionysus. High places and altars on which swine and other animals were to be sacrificed were erected throughout Judea. Inspectors were appointed to enforce this. Then the phrase, Then they shall take away the daily sacrifices and place there the abomination of desolation. The worst of all atrocities was the abomination of desolation. Having taken away the daily sacrifices as they were part of Jewish rituals, which Antiochus saw as a threat to Greek rule, in its place he placed some kind of pagan altar, though the exact nature of the altar is disputed somewhat, though according to Second Maccabees 6.2, the sanctuary was to be renamed the Temple of the Olympian Zeus. The next verse, Daniel 11.32, says, Though who do wickedly against the covenant, he shall corrupt with flattery, but the people who know their God shall be strong and carry out great exploits. The first part of this verse was covered in the discussion on verse 30. The next phrase, but the people who know their God shall be strong and carry out great exploits. Miller explains this reference to those who oppose Antiochus's attempt to outlaw Judaism this way. He says, yet even in this dark period, there were true believers, those who know their God among the Jews who remained faithful to their God. Foremost among those who resisted the oppressive measures of Antiochus were the Maccabees. A certain priest named Matthias refused to forsake his God. He had five sons, three of whom became known as the Maccabees. The Maccabees successfully overthrew the Syrian yoke through a series of brilliant military victories, apparently predicted in Zechariah 9, 13-17, against Antiochus's military commanders. As a result, the temple was rededicated, which is where we get Hanukkah, to Yahweh on the 25th of Shislev, December 14th, 164 BC, which is detailed in 1 Maccabees 4, verse 52. The next three verses, Daniel 11, 33-35 says, And those of the people who understand shall instruct many. Yet for many days they shall fall by the sword and flame, by captivity and plundering. Now when they fall, they shall be aided with a little help, but many shall join with them by intrigue. And some of those of understanding shall fall to refine them, purify them, and make them white until the time of the end, because it is still for an appointed time. These verses describe the actions of those involved in the Maccabean revolt on one hand, describing their martyrdom in their fight to restore their right to practice Judaism. However, because the next verse after this begins the unambiguous shift from Antiochus to the Antichrist, and considering that the abomination of desolation spoken of in verse 31 is supposed to, in part, refer to a future abomination of Antichrist, see Daniel 12, verse 11, I think I'm on firm footing here when I see these verses as partially, if not majorly, to do with the saints persecuted by Antichrist in the future, as well as referring, in part, to the Maccabean rebellion. If the fade-in, fade-out example I used earlier is true, then this would be the point in the fade where you can see more details of the picture that you're fading to as opposed to the picture you were fading from. 
and by the next verse, I don't think you'll be able to see Antiochus's picture anymore at all, which is precisely the reason that the next section is so interesting. All that to say that if these three verses apply to the future persecuted church by the Antichrist after the abomination of desolation, then it is a scripturally accurate picture of that time, since we see a few key elements that are repeated in the New Testament of that persecution. For example, the reason for allowing the martyrdom here is to, quote, refine them, purify them, and make them white until the time of the end. This is also the reason why God grants the Antichrist the power to kill the saints. Also, the next line, until the time of the end, because it is still for an appointed time, seems to be a parallel to Matthew 24, when the Lord talks at length about the time of Antichrist persecution. He says, And you shall hear of wars and rumors of wars, See that you are not troubled, for all these things must come to pass, but the end is not yet. The end will come after the persecution of the saints, which Jesus clarifies a few verses later when he says, Then shall they deliver you up to be afflicted, and shall kill you, and you shall be hated of all nations for my name's sake. And then shall many be offended, and shall betray one another, and shall hate one another. And many false prophets will rise, and shall deceive many. And because iniquity shall abound, the love of many will wax cold. But he that shall endure unto the end, the same shall be saved, and this gospel of the kingdom shall be preached in all the world for a witness unto all nations, and then the end will come. So we see hints of the end times in these verses in Daniel 11. But as I said, by the next verse, verse 36, we will see a lot more than hints.